Welcome to Health System CIO's Partner Perspective Interview Series. I'm Anthony Guerra, founder and editor-in-chief. Today, we're talking with Ryan Witt, Managing Director of Healthcare with Proofpoint. Ryan, thanks for joining me. Hey, great to be here. Always good. Always enjoy these calls. They're very good, Ryan. Looking forward to it. Um, let's start off with the basics here, Ryan. You want to tell me a little bit about your organization and your role? Sure. Uh, we I work for Proofpoint. Proofpoint is all about protecting people and defending data. Um, as I think we've talked about a number of times on these calls, and I think it's it's pretty well known within the industry. People are now the threats of cyber attacks. Um, and so we are, we have a lot of technology capability around protecting people from, from those sort of cyber events. And because identity is kind of like the new perimeter, so attacking identity with the idea of trying to exfiltrate something that can be monetized. So that's this that goes down to the defending data sort of part of the equation. Um, my job is I am the managing director of healthcare. I that means I run solutions and strategy for the healthcare industry practice. Uh, I've been doing this uh, for about seven years now, and I also chair the company's healthcare customer advisory board. Uh, it's the only advisory board we have dedicated to an industry. Very good. So, uh, you know, you mentioned identity, which is interesting because for the last few years, I've been hearing when when I talk to security professionals that, as you said, identity is the new perimeter or there is no perimeter and it's all about identity. Um, and of course, the, the 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 fatal perhaps weakness in that is if someone gets a hold of an identity, right? Because yeah. if we've made everything about identity with the zero trust type thing, yeah. uh, somebody gets a hold of your identity, they're you. That that whole all that protection um, is not all of it, but a lot of it is is gone, right? That's the Nirvana state. The Nirvana yeah. state is getting all of some of the identity. Once you have the identity, there are lots of things you can do. Um, you know, a lot of nefarious things you can do uh, to uh, to monetize that activity. So yes, getting a hold of identities is is the kind of the goal and the key right now for for most threat actors. So if someone gets a hold of your identity, um, you know, th there's that uh, DLP data loss prevention. We, you know, there's the ransomware. Uh, there's exfiltration going on. There's, and, and this goes to a lot of the device security that's going on. It makes me think of it. So with device security, they're saying, all right, let's get a baseline for what these devices do. So we understand what they're supposed to do. And if they do something they're not supposed to do, we get an alert. If it's acting like it's not supposed to be acting. Um, with identity, is, are there things uh, that come into play there? So for example, um, you have some idea of what someone's supposed to be doing based on their identity, and therefore we can get an alert if they start doing things that are outside the scope of what they would normally do. So even if the identity has been hijacked, there are some technologies that can sense if something's wrong with that identity. Is that going on? Yeah, but maybe, maybe let's go back to the top yeah. here for a second. Um, I think one thing that's a unique characteristic of, of the healthcare industry is how many monetizable activities or are pertinent to that industry. Um, the, the healthcare data is still really, really valuable. So just the exfiltration of data, kind of old school, I'm going to try to steal your data, is there's still value for that in the black market, you know, particularly when it comes to uh, ID theft or trying to, re, you know, trying to uh, establish a new ID, etc. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of monetizable assets within data. So you have all the financial um, 
characteristics of data that that permeate all industries. So that permeates healthcare as well. But healthcare has a lot of intellectual property, particularly if you're in in, in the sort of clinical research or if you have the ability to potentially uh, get 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 access to control substances, um, get access to the supply chain. Um, there there are many many aspects of 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 activity that are interesting to threat actors and we haven't even mentioned ransomware the, the ability to get get to get to get an identity and then get access to some some key clinical systems and then launch, launch a ransomware attack and maybe one of the things that's changed in how threat actors behave is there's no longer this this situation where a threat actor would be tied to their kind of their their kind of key exploit now there are so many sophisticated exploits available uh, on the dark web, uh, threat actor's real goal is just to get the identity, get in, get access to the network, do their reconnaissance, do their due diligence, and then determine, try to figure out what is the best exploit to launch against that institution. Maybe it's a fraud attack. Maybe it's a ransomware attack. Maybe it's a data exfiltration exercise. Maybe it's a combination thereof. So I think I think we need to understand, or it's important to understand that it's the it starts with the identity because the identity gets you gets you kind of like that's your keys to the kingdom, and then you can move around the kingdom. And you can figure out well what is the best thing for me to uh, to focus on from a monetization sort of standpoint. And let's not not forget the monetization is almost always the main focus for threat actors. And it may not when you say what's in it for me, it may not even be the individual that's that's stolen that identity and doing that reconnaissance. They may be looking for vulnerabilities and have their constituents in their in their group that say, Oh, I think this is the best attack on this institution. I'm gonna send it over here because they specialize now. I'm gonna sell this information to them. One hundred percent. One hundred absolutely. We we should treat this as a sophisticated line of business in a cyber in a criminal organization that you know kind of akin to drug trafficking racketeering etc it is a line of business and they will look at the, the holistically what is the best way for them to monetize their activity within that line of business in the same way they would do with those other sort of more traditional sort of uh, criminal activities absolutely they're going to look at the best way to to execute their plan so step one, uh, in your opinion of what they're doing, step one is get the identity and not just any identity, right? Let's get an identity with lots of access. So we know who those people are. Um, let's uh, research them, social media, you know, LinkedIn. Let's find out particular specific human targets at the organizations. And then let's start a sophisticated phishing approach where eventually we want to get a hold of their credentials and get in as them. Is that right? I, I mean, yes. I, I would say any access to the network is valuable. So any 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 penetration of identity is valuable. And you know, to illustrate that with the, you know kind of a very well-known <laughs> breach, I think it goes back to 2014 or whatever it was, when Target had their whole system compromised over Thanksgiving somebody penetrated the, the phone home system of their HVAC, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, that's not happening so much these days. Those sort of holes are being plugged. But it does illustrate that once you have access, you can then move laterally. But 
to be sure, and I think the emphasis of your question and the key point here is not all, act, and I think I should create equally, not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain attributes about an identity that are way more powerful and way more attractive to threat actors. So if if you have a, a persona that's publicly known, um, you're going to be more attractive to a threat actor. If you have a, a job function or you work in a department that is perceived to have access to systems throughout your 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 health and your 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 health institution, uh, you're going to be you're going to be attractive. If you have a persona or identity who works in a vulnerable way, not because you're doing anything untowards, mm-hmm. but you work in a way that means you put yourself in harm's way. You're downloading a lot of files. You're interacting. You know, those files could be transcriptions. It could be invoices. It could be you know, bill payables, it, you can work, you could, you could be somebody who is, you know, doing a remote work and you're downloading files that way. You could be, uh, you could be down, you could be clicking on links all the time. You could be HR, you could be downloading resumes. So you just work in a way that that's vulnerable. So those, that access points interesting because it's easier to launch an exploit against somebody who's downloaded a lot of files, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you're in clinical research, you're you're very interesting. If you work in a, in a uh, from a, from a from an identity standpoint, if you work in a, um, in a in a foundation, so you're in the fundraising arm of 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 that health institution, you have interesting identity. So definitely, any access is interesting, but there's certain access points that are way 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 more valuable. Right, and so the bad guys know that, and. Do most of the good guys know that? Do most of the CISOs that that you speak to, or I mean, that's sort of a, a skewed sample set because they're if they're reaching out to you, it shows they may have this top of mind. But I wonder what you think. What percentage of CISOs are taking a tailored approach to rolling out their security program in that they are are uh, you know doing extra protections and extra education towards those? I think you call them very attack people. Perhaps, yeah. um, do you think that's prevalent? Do you think that everyone's doing that, or you think there are some that are just taking sort of a blanket? Everybody gets covered the same way. You know, I think the industry is finally shaking off what I call the meaningful use era. So the meaningful use era was all around. I have to check boxes, cybersecurity boxes, security boxes to qualify for you know, funds to go roll out by EMR. And that exercise gave a lot of, of health institutions, a lot of health ex- health executives, a lot of IT executives, the perception and maybe the comfort, the plausible deniability, if you want to be critical, uh, we've, we've done our due diligence from a security sort of standpoint. I think the more savvy security executives, IT executives knew that the box checking exercise wasn't always going to result in a secure, robust um, security posture. Mm-hmm. And we paid the price as an industry, we paid the price for that. I think we've moved a long way forward since then. And I think we have situation now where they do recognize threat vectors are extremely different and threat activity is very different. And you do need to tailor your activity accordingly, you do need to layer in your security controls to make sure 
but the right parts of the organization, those who are more attacked, those who are these, what we would call the very attacked people, do have the right sort of protection uh, that that reflects their true threat and vulnerability back to the marketplace. All right. So we understand that that different constituencies are attacked at different levels. Let's get a little more into specifics. Understanding that as a CISO, I would imagine there's there's sort of two uh, areas you need to cover. One would be technologies and tools, things you need to roll out for those individuals, and then perhaps education. You know, we mentioned you mentioned research before. I wonder how many people working in research have ever been told that they're a, a you know a highly attacked target. I wonder if that's ever been told to them or how many places that's been told to them. So if you want to take those two segments, technologies in one area and then education that you want to apply to those very attacked people to help protect them. Yeah, I guess a great question and one that worthy of discussion. Um, I, I think at the VIP level, the very important people, the classic, you know, classic term, I think both institutions know that those people require layers of security. Uh, they're going to be attacked. So I think the industry has done a pretty good job of making sure that the CEO, the CFO, mm-hmm. et cetera, are not clicking on things. They're being, there, there's a lot, enough safeguards in place that mean that the, that the, the, the malware and various sort of nefarious sort of emails are not getting to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the VAP area, the very tech people is a little bit different. Um, I'm recall this, this, in this incident or this uh, instance in a um, an academic healthcare institution noted for its uh, research, uh, noted for its genomic research, um, and it's it was a kind of almost a a, a case study and 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 how how important it is to make sure you protect who's being attacked and a case study to what degree the threat actors will use their sort of social engineering and due diligence to try to understand that institution. So uh, briefly, this this institution had six kind of public-facing research uh, arms, research, I guess, organizations or research units. Um, pretty easy to determine that. They, they were overt about that on their website. But there was one of those uh, units that was that they were known for, that they mm-hmm. were known for this particular area study. And that's really where um, that put that, that institution on the map. And we were working with them. We did analysis of their threat research. This is a very large um, institution, 50,000 plus sort of email addresses to give you a little bit of size and scale. Um, 60% of all of their uh, nefarious emails or sort of uh, um, malware, sort of atta- attack, sort of emails. We're coming. We're going to threat research. We're, sorry, we're going into the research institutions or the, these research units. And within those six different unit, units, ninety percent of that sixty percent were going to this one research unit. And within that one u- research unit. There were about a uh, half dozen or so, sorry, about a dozen or so uh, individuals within that, in, that within that research unit that were receiving like fifty percent of the of the attacks. Mm-hmm. So 
Yeah. Not super granular. It got, got, got down from a, you know, this, this broad based organization broad. Then they were focusing on research and they were focusing on this one research mm-hmm. unit. And then they were really focusing on, you know, a, a few departments within that, within that research unit. That's the level of social engineering that the bad actors will go to, to make sure they're attacking what they believe to be the most valuable portion of that institution. In that instance, no, I I think to your question now, there was not the level of granularity in security layers and controls, education, awareness that these people who are really doing really important work and really meaningful work would would have would be would be involved in activity that'd be so valuable to to a criminal cyber criminal organization or threat actors. I think those people were just kind of consumed in what they do, and I don't think had a, had a sense of how valuable that work would be to a to a cyber attack. And so I think that's the kind of thing where where we do need to think about and and use the prevalent research that's available today from from threat research organizations like Proofpoint that says. Yes, we can make a determination who of where is likely to be uh, receive the most threat activity, and therefore, what are those sort of controls that need to be put in place to make sure that those particular individuals or those particular departments within a health system are being adequately protected. So you can. Um, that's obviously very valuable. Informa- very valuable information to have. Um, I assume that an, organiza- an organization needs to engage a company like Proofpoint to get that level of detail. If you're a CISO and you say, I want to know where the attacks are going. I want to know where the email attacks are going. And, and I want that kind of data so I can I can react accordingly. So there's the general information that you said is, I guess, available online for anyone in your on your site with the the information about the attack constituencies, but if you want a, if you want that granular information about your specific institution down to the email address level, uh, that's sort of something that you need to engage someone like Proofpoint to get. You you would yeah mm-hmm. you would and I think then it goes back to the tool sort of standpoint. You look at um, how do you protect those people and how do you put the right sort of you know, layered sort of controls in place, whether it's things like isolation technology or data loss prevention, the level of telemetry that looks at threat, who's likely to be attacked, Mm -hmm. I think is so important in how you deploy those sort of tools. Uh, A lot of DLP technology will, you know, it's very content aware, there's behavior awareness. And in terms of like, is that person doing things that are outside of the normal activity? Or is this person working with right. content that's valuable? Those those are kind of more common attributes of, of of these sort of tools. But I think layer in that threat angle, saying yes, this person is dealing with sensitive content. Yes, this person might be doing something that's outside of the the characteristics you would expect of that job function. And this person is historically, or this job function historically, this department historically is also heavily targeted. Yeah, in all our conversations, I mean, it, it's it. This is so important from your point of view. Y- you need to know this. You need to understand this, and you need to. This needs to be your starting point. You can't just roll out technology, security technologies. That's not the best way to 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 develop your security posture. You must start with this approach. 
Am I right? That's always I, been I, your I, philosophy. I think, it's, I think it's essential. I think it's essential for a lot of reasons. One is I think that's how you provide the best layer of defense for where the attacks are occurring, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is it would be great to think we could roll out the, the gold or platinum standard to everybody in the institution. That's not pragmatic. It's not possible. You don't have the resources. You don't have the budgets. You can't respond to that many alerts. I mean, it's just not pragmatic. Um, and then I, I, I think it also really kind of gets down to focusing on what is core to your organization, core to your being, core to your mission, and thinking about how you can safeguard that le- those those peoples or those departments that are core to you you living your mission or delivering against your mission. And I think one of the things that distinguishes um, the executive teams and the cybersecurity teams, the CISOs that 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 I think do a really good job here is they understand at a, at the core what the mission of the institution is. And they do a great job of articulating that risk back to their executive teams, back to their board about, hey, this is not only financial harm possibility or regulatory harm or brand harm, but if we don't do something about this, it actually fundamentally cuts into who, you know, who we are as an institution. Why we're here? Why do we exist? Mm-hmm. That that's when you can make that connection back to the mission. That's when you get hospital executives, hospital boards really sit up and take note. Say, okay, I you know we have to we have it we have a responsibility to to meet the goals of our mission, which is way different sort of way of thinking about things, and akin to how boards want to think about things, as opposed to it's a HIPAA violation. Or, you know, it's a fraud attack and we're going to lose some money. I don't want to minimize the, you know, those, those are important too, mm-hmm. but they don't often always get the kind of level of board attention that a mission-based attack can get. Right. And, and we see, so they have a, a certain amount of money, um, you know, they have a budget and if you're not, if you're not being targeted with your approach when you're using rolling out technologies, does it make sense to say you may um, buy more licenses of a particular technology than you may need because you're using a blanket approach? And therefore, if you were more targeted, you would apply those licenses to certain people and have the rest of that money left over to put somewhere else. You would be spending your money more wisely if you took a targeted approach. Does that make Only, sense? That's a very, I, I would totally agree with that. There's an elegance and sophistication to layering your controls to where um, to where you think you need to, to where where your organization needs that level of protection. Not everybody needs that. Okay, so recognizing this is when you think about, you know, for example, go back going back to my my uh, discussion a little bit earlier about thinking about who in your organization just works in a vulnerable way. You know, they might be a a casual worker who's, I can't have the right word. They might be a consultant who who actually is more or aligned to a different organization or different institution, but they consult to you for a little bit. Uh, so therefore they're using messaging tools that you don't have necessary control over. They might be on your network and it's harder, it's harder to get them off your network. They might have access to, they need access to your systems, um, but they don't 
just like, you know, belong to your health system. So they may not have the same level of controls institutionally put in place. So you might think about, okay, that's the type of person or type of that, that I'm going to layer my controls in versus, you know, the, the employed, uh, the, the employed person doing similar work, but just by nature of their employment, they kind of get better controls already. So you might, yeah, there are things, ways to think about that or people in your organization, your threat research organization who just need, far more greater control because they are far great, more greatly attacked. I liked your use of the words elegance and sophistication um, for, uh, I guess, an approach that can be taken to rolling out cybersecurity. Um, is that something, now you work with a lot of CISOs at a lot of health systems, um, and I'm sure you've seen some that really impress you uh, and others perhaps not so much, but for those that really do impress you, I'm guessing elegance and sophistication in their approach to their work is part of it. Um, and what are some other things or some other attributes that you would say, you know, when I see people that really impress me, they do these things and they, maybe they don't do these other things. I, I think the elegant sophistication is so finding the right tool or the right level of protection or the right level of training. It's not always about tools uh, and deploying them in the right way. But also, I think the, the the ones that really impressed me are the ones who can use the right language to uh, explain the need for that protection to the right audience. And so I think about kind of two primary stakeholders often in this discussion. One is the cl clinicians and physicians. And so if you can kind of equate this to a patient safety discussion, that resonates greatly with that community, right? So we're doing this, we're putting these controls in place to help you provide patient care or to make sure that you're not hampered or hindered from providing patient care because the system or the EMR or this modality that's so vital to your patient care process is available to you. Or they have the right level of ability to then translate maybe to the hospital board a risk boards are always about managing risk, right? And so if you could talk in terms of, of explaining the cybersecurity needs or postures of investment in terms of like mitigating risk or understanding risk, and this is the way you mitigate against that risk, that's the kind of language that, again, resonates greatly with that community. So I think your ability for the CISO to be able to talk about what they're doing raise up the, um, the 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 language and the way they're going to go tell the story, the narrative. So it's it, it relevant. It's relevant to the audience is is very, very critical. And I think that's what to me distinguishes um, you kind of your elite CISOs mm -hmm. and you tend to have an elite sort of security postures and those right. who are still struggling. It's interesting. Uh, I've had a lot of talks with different people about uh, threat intelligence and how important that is uh, to developing a proper security posture. So threat intelligence, as I think of it, is the information that comes out of different, you know, perhaps vendors and, and other government entities with alerts and things like that, general stuff. Um, you talked about with that analysis you did for that institution with the research arms, that was a specific analysis of their attacks, how they're being attacked. I would imagine that taken in conjunction, those two would be quite powerful using general threat intelligence information in combination with specific 
an analysis of the threats uh, my organization is facing and patterns that we've seen over a certain period of time. Uh, does that make sense? I wonder if everybody's doing that and and higher and and having those individual analyses done. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and even you know, a lot of that threat intel you just kind of reference is is you know down to a particular organization. But Proofpoint makes, you know, kind of at a macro level available our findings to the marketplace. So right. we, we've talked about a lot, for example, two communities um, within healthcare, read the, re- you know, if you have any sort of clinical research arm within your organization, the likelihood of them being under, under exponentially higher attack is high. And, and also if you have, as most health systems do, any sort of foundation or fundraising component within your health system like those are two organizations that that two departments i should say that tend to face far greater um levels of 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 activity threat activity and so we'll we'll, we make that kind of available that data sort of available so if you want to look at threat intel more broadly that comes from i don't know health isac for example as, as one institution that promotes very broadly about their threat alerts or more granularly about someone like Proofpoint, we'll we'll talk about what we think is happening uh, in a healthcare sort of context and where we think health institutions should be thinking about in terms of uh, at least broadly the threat activity. And then you know your mileage might vary, but they're pretty strong indicators that if we if if we publish research that says the foundation or the the, the research arm our research departments within these within these healthcare institutions are being attacked probably could could apply to you as well right right and then i don't know if you if you know this but you know on the education part um what do you re- what are these cso's doing to to percolate down that information to those users to those individuals we talked about in in the research division who are that you know who are hit, getting 90% of those emails and what kind of what kind of education should they be getting? You know, I, I've seen a big shift there, and 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 a, and, a, and a meaningful, noteworthy shift. A lot of the education historically was around uh, making sure they were on the right side of regulate 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 regulation. You know, regulatory issues. Again, not not that that's not important. Of course, it's important. But more and more, the education these days is trying to explain to the user. Um, that it's a patient safety or patient care sort of issue. And that, uh, as we've seen with a number, too many, I would say, high-profile events where they have a ransomware event, ransomware attack, and that health system is essentially decapped for a month, six, eight weeks. Um, and they're, you know, they're basically relegated to reconstructing the patient record on, on, you know, on paper, uh, trying to um, either move patients to a neighboring health system, et cetera. So, it, you know, this, under, this understanding that there is a direct connection or there can be a direct connection to a cyber event and and some, for, some form of adverse patient outcome. I think that that makes it far more um, real in, in an education, security awareness training sort of standpoint they, I think that resonates more greatly with those users as opposed to, uh, you know, some code somewhere, some 
some sort of regulation that I can't do this. Okay, fine, I won't do that. But if you start saying, oh no, if you give access, if you you know, if you give access to your credentials or if someone compromises your identity, the ramifications can be far more severe than just you, you know, falling foul of a regulation. Yeah, it's. I mean, it makes total sense. It, what what I find bizarre sometimes i guess it's just pr is you know we put in these systems to improve patient safety right to improve patient safety to make healthcare better um and yet sometimes when they come offline to a ransomware event they say there's been no impact whatsoever on patient patient care well you can't have a both you can't have it both ways right you can't spend a billion dollars and say we're spending this to improve patient care and, and it goes away and you say oh we're good no, no change. So. Yeah, no. It's we. I, I mean, I respectfully, we know that's not accurate. Right? Oh yeah. If you, yeah. If you lose access to your EMR, if you lose access to some crit- critical systems, it has got to impact patient right. care. It, and that's and that's what we're telling people to get yeah. them to be safe. We're yeah. telling them this will impact patient care, and then after the fact, they say, you know, the PR people say it didn't impact patient care, but that's a. Uh, that's another issue, right? Um, real quick, I want to ask you one more question. You know, we're focusing on email here. One of the biggest things that we've seen over the last number of years, been going on for a while now, is a lot of organizations are offloading sort of responsibility for their email to like Google and the sort of the whole health system's email is going to be run sort of by Google. And they'll keep their URL and their their naming convention and all that. Uh, we've seen that up in the cloud. It's gone. It's not my problem anymore. It is a huge sort of change if you're taking people off Microsoft Outlook. And I mean, that's just a workflow kind of big change management thing. Right. But from a security point of view, what changes from securing your email to when you were running it on-prem uh, to if, you, if you've if you offloaded it to Google? What's the difference there? I mean, uh... Not focusing on Google per se, but just right. maybe focusing on cloud, just more right, right. Yeah, um, uh, it's fundamentally it's it's a huge change, mm-hmm. uh, and it doesn't improve your security posture necessarily. In fact, it makes it in some ways a lot more a lot more um, precarious. Um, it, compromising those cloud environments uh, can happen um, because of the you know, because of the need and the importance of those systems are a lot less likely to to stop access after three or four failed attempts or whatever for, you know, so, you know, you can run a lot more programs against that trying to trying to penetrate those systems. Um, and then, unfortunately, when you get into those environments, uh, let's say you get into a, you know, I don't know, a OneDrive or whatever, or SharePoint, or, you know, again, I'm, I'm trying to pick on any sort of vendor or any sort of capability, but once you're in, you're you're deemed to be kind of in the system. You're kind mm-hmm. of like you're in, you're in the you're in the castle door, castle. You're within the castle, and so when you start launching exploits from those environments, it's deemed to be much more credible because it's coming from my internal source. It obviously must be you know this request must be legit or this link must be fine because it came from my my you know came from my own cloud. It's got to mm-hmm. be. It's mm-hmm. got to be. So it, yeah, we we have found, um, and again, there's a lot of research on this. Um, people are still being attacked. Uh, people are being attacked largely on email. Um, uh, you know, Hims would say that um, 
e email is almost always the, the, the you know, the primary um, compromise, initial point of compromise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was interesting, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the seminal kind of reports that look at threat research, uh, they basically publish their threat research, their annual threat research report. They've been doing this for well over 10 years now. Uh, came out in January. <laughs> they basically said, had I known that I could essentially cut and paste my from my report 10 years ago and all the same issues would be relevant today, this is nothing really new. And the fact that it's gone to the cloud has not changed that. It's made it more vulnerable. People are still trying to attack that environment and um it's has not improved the security of, of it at all so let's make this a, a, a your final question um you know you mentioned that about 10 years ago things being relevant from 10 years ago one of the things we hear security people say a lot is i love this job because nothing stays the same everything's always changing so on one level there's a lot of similarity from what's gone on and i guess on certain other levels things have changed. Talk to me a little bit about that and your final piece of advice for our listeners. Uh, I would say the the areas of attack haven't changed too much. I mean, it's still about phishing. It's still about ransomware. Uh, we didn't see fraud attacks 10 years ago. So that's a, you know, a recent, I don't know if it's recent, it's, how good, it's been a good five years where fraud attacks have been. Um, the tactics have changed. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, you know, quite possibly, I don't know, a few years from now, we'll be talking about, you know, deep fake technology or whatever, or, you know, but the point is they're still trying to do the same thing. They're trying to penetrate mm -hmm. the system. They're trying to compromise an identity. Uh, they're just using different tactics uh, to do so. Um, social engineering didn't exist 10 years ago. Social engineering is a core component now of, of, of a uh, attacker's sort of arsenal. And so that you know, it's the tactics and all that that have that have noteworthy that made that made noteworthy changes. Um, so I think that's that's what keeps it keeps the role uh, particularly interesting and the ability to go penetrate the system and 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 the things that we talked about ten years ago are happening, but some of them it's interesting and some of them don't really have have not evolved in the way I kind of thought they would evolve. You know, so I think I think it was a black hat. 2008 or so, Barnaby Jack, you know, kind of one of the no notorious sort of hackers, white hat hackers, got on stage and demonstrated how he could uh, basically compromise a pump in a mm -hmm. fusion pump, mm -hmm. right? And everyone said, okay, you know, medical devices are going to be the new, the newest attack vector. You know, you go back 50, 15 years ago, 15 years later, we don't see too many examples of, in of infusion pumps being attacked. And it's not because the security of those have improved over time. They haven't really improved much at all. In fact, many of them are still very vulnerable. What's changed, however, are, is the, how valuable that old school attacks still are. So it's still attackers, um, cyber criminal organizations can still make a lot of money just doing phishing sort of attacks, penetrating identities, ransomware style attacks. And so... You know these sort of new style attacks, like attacking internet of, of devices or medical devices, are coming, but they're not they're not really there yet. You um, you let me just show me. You said yeah. that that before that it's a lot easier to write an email than to hack an infusion. I'm sorry, it's even funny to say than to hack an infusion pump. Right? It's hard, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, yeah, you could teach somebody within 
a couple of days and how to go on to various social media websites and start building a profile and start, well, you know, you can think about chat GPT these days, right, right. write an email, you know, as if I was a physician, right. you know, looking for a new system to my IT. I mean, there are a lot of tools to help you with that. There aren't so many tools that tells you how to go penetrate and, and and a security diagram of a of, a, of an infusion pump and you know what are the the radio transmission frequencies and all that sort of you don't really right. find that so much. <laughs> right, right. All right. Uh, any other final thought? Uh, I interrupted you and I probably messed up your train of thought in that last question. Well, I, you, but, uh... you asked what was the final advice. I think my final advice would be recognize that you know your your healthcare unfortunately is still at the forefront of activity for cyber criminals they they see a lot of valuable data in this industry and they're trying to compromise penetrate uh, identities and not all identities are treated equally so figuring out who's more likely to be attacked you know based on their job function based on their access to systems based on the way they work i think is a significant clue about how you should go layer in your security controls yeah. And, uh, you know, about how things have changed. Um, to me, it seems like the bad guys have gotten much more organized, right? They're much more formal, much more. We talked about handing off an exploit to whoever might do it best. They're not going away. They're yeah. going to keep coming at you. Um, and, you know, they can do a lot of damage, 150 million, uh, you know, recently with the health system from a cyber incident. So uh, you got to be vigilant and you got to keep at it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Ryan, thanks so much for your time today. A real pleasure. I really appreciate yeah, it. I appreciate it too. Good, good conversation.